This is the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Robin Hicks. Carbon markets should be cancelled. ESG is somewhere between a joke and a fraud. These are some of the views of Assad Razouk, a clean energy entrepreneur based in Singapore. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about some hard truths about the energy transition and discuss some of the solutions that are supposedly going to keep climate change in check. Over the last year, we've seen a torrent of companies declare they're going net zero, and everyone seems to be claiming they're an expert on ESG these days. But what's actually real? On the EB podcast today, we welcome a guest who casts a sceptical eye over the climate solutions of the day. Welcome to the podcast, Assad. Very nice to be here, Robin. Thank you. So great to have you on the show, Assad. Um, personally, I'm a big fan of your podcast, Angry Clean Energy Guy, which I think really is a sort of voice of reason for the energy transition at a time when we're, we're sort of being bamboozled with hyperbole from companies and governments about um, what we need to do to confront the climate crisis, right? Um, so my first question for you is, which of the supposed solutions to climate change in play right now make you the most angry and why? There are only two solutions, right? One is we've got to go 100% renewables in a combination of wind, solar, and storage. And the second one is we have to stop deforestation. Everything else makes me angry because it's pie in the sky. And in particular, Robin, if you look at what's going on around us, there are there is a triangle of deceit, basically, and obfuscation, which is built around three concepts. The first one is net zero, which should simply be zero. The second one is ESG, which is all about reporting and disclosure, and zero about actually doing something. And the third one is the voluntary carbon markets, which have become an easy way out for people to not only continue doing what they're doing, corporates I'm talking about, but actually take it to the next level and pollute even more. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, carbon markets and carbon offsets. The reason I was going to ask you is because actually I was approached by someone um, from a big energy company last week, right, who was upset by an article um, that we'd written on EcoBusiness that questioned the validity of carbon offsets and wanted us to address the, uh, in quotes, misinformation that we published, right? And um, her argument was that offsets play an important part of the energy transition story. What do you say to that, though, Assad, that um, while not perfect, they play an important role? I agree with that statement with a critical caveat, provided the offsets are coming from a compliance market not from a voluntary market. If you look at the world of offsets, there's really two buckets, right? One bucket is regulated by either countries or uh, US states or the European Union or New Zealand or others. And there basically they would typically have a cap and trade And if you pollute more than what you were supposed to, you can buy an offset or an emission reduction unit from someone else in that system. Some of these offsets are also available to purchase 
by people outside that system. The key about the regulated offsets is that the price support and the integrity is there, or at least people are trying hard to deliver on both. Then the second bucket is the voluntary carbon markets. Voluntary by definition means that it's self-regulating by many organizations, you know, trying to do the right thing, but tried for abuse by polluters throwing a lot of money at the system. And the numbers, you know, are um, ridiculous. So the entire global voluntary, emphasis on voluntary, carbon offset market in 2019 was 104 million tons. Forget about what 104 million tons means, but bear in mind that Shell alone pretends it's gonna find 120 million tons to offset. So, you know, the, the whole thing doesn't make sense and frankly has become an excuse to do nothing and needs to be stopped. It needs to be regulated into oblivion, basically. Yeah, in one of your podcasts, you mentioned, um, which is linked to our carbon offsets, right? What, what those offsets are spent on, um, a new in sustainability jargon that's, that's mentioned a lot these days, nature-based solutions, right? Tree planting schemes. Um, some of those I'm sure are legitimate, but there's, there's an awful lot of money um, being spent on these, these solutions that doesn't necessarily have the, the required oversight, right? Um, what are your thoughts on, on nature-based solutions at the moment as a we've mentioned a climate solution. I'll tell you what my thoughts are. I don't have time for nature-based solutions. And let me tell you why I say that. Um, first of all, to fight climate change effectively, you need to stop deforestation. That is the priority, right? Stopping deforestation because from an emissions control perspective, that is your critical carbon sink and the only one that you actually know works. So that's you know, point number one. Point number two is the numbers are, are nothing to do with, with you know, what nature-based solutions may or may not uh, deliver. So what I mean by that is an NGO calculated that each year, each year, the global corporates together cause $7.6 trillion, that's trillion dollars of damage to the environment, which they don't pay for. And that's in three buckets emissions of greenhouse gases, disposal of uh, unrecycled waste, think plastic, for example, and discharge of untreated water. So if you have a $7.6 trillion problem, and you're going to convince me that we're going to solve it by planting a tree, or even dent it, or make any effect whatsoever, then as I said before, uh, you know, I just wouldn't have time for that conversation, to be honest. And the final point is that if you want to regrow the global forest, the science is clear. 
all you need to do is prepare the ground, acknowledge your limitations, and get out of the way. That's all you need to do. You don't actually need to plant a tree. We are the number one driver of deforestation. And the further we're away, I think, from fixing it badly, the better off the collective is. Yeah, absolutely. But um, certainly makes for good publicity, doesn't it? Um, announcing a you know, multi-billion dollar um, ple- uh, tree planting scheme. Um, something else that makes for good publicity is, is net zero. Now, you touched on that earlier on. We've seen um, so far in 2021 a gazillion net net zero declarations here in Asia from the likes of Petronas, uh, CDL, Sinopec, lots of different sorts of companies. Um, Any of these scream BS to you? Well, look, as I said, you have to look at what's going on by kind of testing a triangle because of, of net zero, ESG, and voluntary carbon markets. If you actually dot the lines between these three, you'll see that, you'll see clearly what the problem is. So I'll try to summarize it, okay? Net zero is basically a trap. It's a mechanism to do very little. And by the way, to be specific, Robin, I am talking about companies making net zero pledges, not nations. Okay, nations is a separate story, which we can address later if you'd like, but I'm talking specifically about corporates. So in effect, it's very simple. Climate change comes from there being too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. What we need to do is we need to stop that, right? We have to stop emitting more and then we have to decrease our emissions. That is just an argument for zero, not net zero. The net bit comes to, uh, the net bit comes historically from a myth that one day we're gonna be able to start removing carbon, existing carbon from the atmosphere or solve it by by planting um, uh, trees, for example, or have direct air capture devices that suck out carbon from the air. Now, in my view, all of that stuff is science fiction. Hence, any corporate needs to focus on decreasing its own emissions to zero, not to net zero. And at the same time, though, when you look at those making net zero announcements, they're the same ones getting on the ESG bandwagon. So the environmental, social, and responsibility disclosure and reporting fashion that's out there today. And you have, to, you have to keep an eye on what they're doing there as well, because it's probably equally dangerous. I think it was just one day of last week, right, that we noticed we reported on three different banks announced in Asia announcing new heads of ESG finance in one day. Um, and I look closely at what they actually do and their day jobs, and they were just heads of finance. They've been heads of finance for, for decades, and but suddenly they've been given an ESG role as well. So um, that, that's, that raised a bit of a red flag to, to me, at least. And I, I wanted to ask you, Asad, what is your issue with ESG, and especially ESG finance? Isn't it a tool that we need 
um, to shift money, to shift capital towards um, the solutions that we need to, to fight climate change. ESG has become a tremendously powerful investment trend. So today, something like 80% of mutual funds offer ESG products and more than a dollar out of three professionally managed is labeled ESG. So back to the banks, banks are appointing ESG offices because they kind of have to. ESG labeled asset management requires it from a, um, uh, it's, it's kind of like putting on makeup, right? So you have to, you just kind of have to do that because it's a requirement to look good. Now, having said that, this should be about making a difference. What ESG today is, it's, it's the environmental, social, and governance risk embedded in a business, but it's about cataloging them, right? So the idea is to spread information about the ESG risks embedded in a business because these might affect the performance of the business. Now, at the end of the day, what ESG gives you, best case scenario, is a beautiful ESG report cataloging some of those risks. But ESG does not put a number on them and ESG does not lead to you reducing your earnings because of your environmental destruction. So the ESG catalog basically is a lot of blah, blah, blah to say in order to feel better about not having environmental destruction in my earnings statements, I'm going to have this huge bucket for everything not on my company's balance sheet or earnings, then I'm gonna ignore them when looking at profits, at executive pay, at how my stock is trading, at my credit ratios. And that is deceptive. That, that's my problem with ESG. And it can very easily be fixed. For example, you can fix it by having accounting standards that put numbers on the E in ESG. Now, it's critically important for any investor in a company to know about the social and governance risks in that business. So there, I have no issues with the S and the G, but the E has to be priced. Greenwash as a journalist, I think, covering this beat is, is something that I'm wary of and I want to ask you about it. What sort of greenwashing at the moment that you're seeing worries you the most, Assad? And, and which, which companies, if you, don't want to, if you want to name and shame, do you think are, are most guilty of it? It's no surprise that, that greenwashing champions of the world are probably a direct, directly correlated to the largest emitters in the world. And so that would be... Um, oil and gas companies, but not just oil and gas companies. The problem with greenwashing today is that it's epic and it's rampant, right? It's just everywhere. Because when you look through net zero, when you look through ESG, when you look through voluntary carbon, you cannot hide the fact that emissions keep rising. So we've been at this for 
um, you know, since the Earth Summit in 1992, we have not really affected rising emissions to this day, 2021. Now, the biggest actors by far are corporates. So I think it's not just a greenwashing issue. I mean, it's a question of what are they actually doing in practice? We're still wasting our time today in 2021 looking for banks to explain to us how they're going to get to net zero by 2050 and developing standards for them to disclose against, which if you're lucky will show up this decade. That, that, is just, that is just nonsense. All we need is we've got to price the E. And you know, Robin, it's very simple. Take Toyota so that we just don't talk about oil and gas companies all day long. Mm-hmm. Take any car company. Toyota today in a good year makes $20 billion of profits. If you look at Toyota's own disclosed emissions, so what it says it's responsible for in terms of CO2 emissions, and you multiply that by $50 as a very conservative social cost of carbon, guess what number you get? You get $20 billion. So in fact, Toyota today, if it was paying for that greenhouse gas pollution, would not be making any money. Guess what that would then do? It would spur it to stop its um, kind of strategy to not get on the electrification bandwagon. Uh, Exxon is a much worse problem. Exxon in a great year makes 20 billion, but in 2019, it had something like 750 million tons of CO2 in emissions according to Exxon. Multiplied by 50, you get $36 billion. So in fact, Exxon has been fundamentally unprofitable for decades. Yet, it's not recognized in earnings. It's not recognized in the stock. Executives get paid very well. And all that environmental destruction is socialized to the rest of us. So all you have to do, all you have to do, I mean, it's really simple. Can I please have some accounting standards that force companies to take these numbers either directly through through their P&L or given how conservative accountants are, publish another P&L in their footnotes showing the money they're actually making after accounting for environmental destruction in three buckets, emissions, waste, and water. Mm. That goes back to your your earlier point, pricing the E in ESG, the environment in ESG, which is massively important. Um, Asad, back in, uh, I think it's December 2019, I was really excited to be talking to you about um, something positive um, in this context. And you you mentioned to me the phrase climate optimism. um, And then um, I talked to you about it and we did a story about it on eco-business. So the reasons you, some of the reasons you had then to be optimistic still hold true for you. Absolutely. You have got to stay optimistic because every 0.1 degree of warming matters and there is no ceiling to that statement. So therefore, 
we've probably locked in two degrees of warming with all sorts of terrible consequences. However, we've got to work harder so that it doesn't go up to 2.1 or three or four degrees of warming. So just this week, Robin, I mean, things are, um, there is grounds for optimism, except I don't know when that optimism will start translating into a reduction in emissions, followed by a maximization of the global warming that we've banked. The Americans said they're gonna reduce emissions 50% by 2030. The British said they're going to reduce emissions 78% by 2035 and include aviation and shipping, which is world first. The EU said it's going to cut CO2 emissions 55% by 2030. Even Canada, which is a laggard, said it's going to go up to 40%. And that's just this week. So every week, I think it's important to focus on the good but it doesn't mean burying the bad under the carpet, because as I said, every action we take and accelerate matters. Mm, absolutely. Um, the bad and the good. That leads on to the final question I want to ask you. Now, you've got a huge following on social media um, where you tweet about environment themes to about 140,000 Twitter followers, um, huge following on LinkedIn as well. Um, what's your key to engaging an audience, Assad, with sustainability content? Over time, because I've been at this for a while, um, I can tell you what I learned. The first one is no one really cares about my views on politics or food or the latest fashion trend. So it's very important that you stay consistent in terms of the area that you are communicating about. Second, you have to never stop. So I tweet two to four times a day, seven days a week, pretty much, and LinkedIn and Facebook. And I publish a podcast every couple of weeks, irrespective of anything in terms of how busy elsewhere I might be or what have you. And I think that's very important. So consistency and drive are very important. Number three, start by communicating what you're reading because, because that's easy. But at the same time, given that you read what you, you, you presumably what you're, what you're sending out, find out the important bit and summarize it for people so that when they go to social media where they want to spend half a minute, they get what they need. And then fourth, you know, no, don't kind of just go for the doom and gloom, but also don't go just for the optimism. I think it's very important to communicate things as they are, because everybody is an adult, everybody's smart, and everybody's capable of making their own judgments about it. So, you know, we're not, uh, you can't be dogmatic about this. And so to the extent possible, you know, stick to facts, but explain them or rather interpret them or, you know, opine on them, but then let your audience decide what it ultimately will do with this information by being 
consistently honest and transparent. Um, great place to leave it. Asad Razouk, thank you so much for joining the Eco Business Podcast. Robin, you've been very kind. Thank you. This podcast was hosted by Eco Business, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media, or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.